Alright, good. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that you will be glorified in the beacon. You will be glorified in the sanctuary. Your name will be honored and glorified. And even as we are recording this, that you will take and use what is said to expose your word to your people and that we will see your glory and the glory of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Now, when we started several months ago, almost a year ago now, uniting what we do on Sunday mornings between our Bible teaching time and our sermon time, our worship time, I made the point very clear that I was going to try as best I could, even though we would be in the same book, not to preach from the same text that we had studied in Bible study, unless, and I did put an unless in there, unless it was unique or very special, or I thought there was more that we could glean from the passage than what we did in our Bible study time. So this morning, we are looking at the text that many of you just finished looking at while you were in Bible study, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And there's a reason for that. Like some of you in the room, uh, I also teach Sunday school, and I looked at the text. It was a good Sunday school lesson, but there were some things there that I felt like we needed to hear. And of course, there are some of you who weren't able to be in Bible study this morning. I'd love for you to be a part of that, but I understand uh, we can't all be in Sunday school every Sunday. And so I want you also to hear what God has to say from this very, very important passage in Genesis chapter 11. So if you're in Bible study, don't tune me out. Don't say, well, I've already heard that. There's nothing that, uh, that I need to hear. I've already studied this passage. Because if you think that it's too distant, too ancient, too strange or different from our world today, let me just throw a few questions out at you. Where do all the languages in the world come from? And all these cultures and people groups, are they the result of sin? Are they a good idea full of potential for the glory of God to be seen in the world? Is it good or bad that there are so many political nation states who tend to be very nervous about one another and keep their eyes on one another? What does God think of a monolithic super state? Will he prevent one? Will the world end with one? And on a more personal level, what is your own root sin? And what does God think about it? What has God done to help you with that? If those questions have any bearing on your life at all, if they're even remotely curious to you, you'll find them right here in this passage, and we'll do our best to dig those out. But before we do that, we have to begin by clarifying one particular issue, and that has to do with the fact that if you were a careful reader of the book of Genesis, last week we were in Genesis chapter 9, and we're jumping over chapter 10 and getting to chapter 11. And at the beginning of chapter 11, it looks like that this is the discussion of how all of the languages were created because it was only one language. And yet if you read chapter 10, you notice, for example, in verse 3, it says, Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Rizpath, Torgarma, Javan's sons, it go on. And then verse 5, it says, The coastland peoples spread out into their lands. These are Japheth's sons by their clans in their nations, and each group had its own language. 
Each group had its own language in chapter 10, verse 5. And yet in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, and the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. Well, how, how did that happen? It would appear that the things are written out of order. And did Moses just change his mind and say, wait, 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 cancel all that that you read in chapter 10? Because three times in chapter 10, verse 5, verse 20, and again at verse 31, just two verses before you get to chapter 11, it says the people all had their own languages and their own peoples. Well, our job is to get in there and figure out why did that happen? What was Moses doing? Did he just forget? Did he change his mind? Or was there a plan? I believe that, of course, there was a plan to it. Because you see, it looks like in chapter 10 that the people are doing exactly what God had told Noah and his sons to do in chapter 9, verse 1. It says that God blessed Noah in chapter 9, and he said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so then you have chapter 10, and here they go. They are out there just replenishing and multiplying and doing exactly what God had told them to. But you know, sometimes when God wants to show us something that is shocking, or even sometimes when we just do it as humans and we want to surprise someone, sometimes we tell them the shocking thing at the beginning and then explain it. Sometimes we lay things out and then at the end we put the shocker. And I think that's exactly what happened here because it looks like in chapter 10 that all of Noah and his sons and their descendants were doing exactly what God had said they were being obedient. But they weren't. They weren't being obedient at all. They were not scattering. They were clustering. And so after Moses gives us this layout, he turns around and says, I need to tell you the shocker part of this story. They were not scattering. They were clustering. And they did not do what God told them to do until he had to give them a good kick and kick them out of the place where they were clustered so that they could do what he had planned for them to do. So chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, gives us an explanation of what led up to the scattering that happened in chapter 10. So with that in mind, we'll set that aside now, and let's look at what the Scripture says. Let's read again verses 1 through 4. At one time the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There are two great sins exposed right here. There are four statements in verse 4. Look at those four statements. First, let us build a city. Second, let us build a tower in that city that will rise up to heaven. Thirdly, let us make a name for ourselves. And fourthly, let us not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, those first two things link together with the second two. Let us build a city so that we won't have to be scattered. We don't want to be scattered out. We don't want to do what God told us to do. So we'll build a city and we'll build walls and we will be safe and we will be there and we'll go out of the city to farm and then we will come back into the evening and we won't have to be scattered out into the whole world and let us build a tower that will reach all the way up to heaven itself. And boy, that will make a great name for ourselves now, won't it? We'll be known all over the area, all over the land. Everyone will know exactly what's going on and we'll be a great people and get a great name. Those two actions, building the city and building a tower, are the outward reflections of the inner 
sins, and we need to know what they are because they're your sins and my sins. The first one was the sin of the praise of man. They wanted the praise of man. They wanted a name for themselves. So they would build this tower, and everyone would look and say, boy, look at those people that shine. Aren't they great? Aren't they powerful? Aren't they wonderful? And every one of us in this room today, every one of us struggles with the sin of desiring the praise of man. We want it. Now, we have different kinds of personalities. We want it different kinds of ways and for different kinds of reasons. But every one of us wants to be praised by people. We like it when people look up to us and say nice things about us. We want to do things so that we'll be praised and thought well of. And the second sin was the desire for safety. So what's wrong with wanting safety? Nothing at all, as long as we find our safety in God. But they didn't want to find their safety in God, did they? They wanted to find safety in the things that they could build for themselves. Let us build ourselves a city, and then we will be safe. We'll be secure. We won't have to look to God for help. We can take care of ourselves. So the sin of wanting the praise of man and the sin of wanting security by our own efforts. And those are the sins that to this day plague us and berate us. And we live in that wrestling match. And you see, the thing about that is the will of God is not that we should find our pleasure in the praise of man, but we should find our pleasure instead in knowing and praising God. But we like man's praise. Nobody likes to be beaten up or cast down or spoken ill of by people. Ooh, look at that First Baptist Church of Waterloo. Aren't they a great church? Aren't they wonderful? Look at all the wonderful things they are doing. We like for people to praise us. We like to be invited to the important events and included in the list of names and getting the praise of man instead of wanting to know and praise God. And it's God's will that we should find our security by trusting in Him. Not by the things that we can build for ourselves. Not in the houses that we can build. Not in the fortresses that we can build. Not in the alarms that we can put on our cars or the locks that we can put on our doors or the firearms that we can conceal on our bodies. That is not where we're to find our security. We find our security in God and trust in Him. And so these two sins, the praise of man and security that can be made from our own efforts were the sins of these people, and there are sins today. So what does God do in response to that? How does God respond to these two primal sins in the lives of these people? Well, let's look and see what it says in verse 5. It says, the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. There are two things in this passage, I think, that speak to the fact that something is about to happen. First of all, he refers to the tower that the men were building. Now, if you have the Holman Bible, there is a little point by that, a little spot next to the word men, which means it's back in the glossary. And that literally, that phrase, literally that word men in this particular instance means the sons of man or the sons of earth or the children of the earth. In other words, God recognizes the fact that these are the children of Adam. And they are doing the very same thing that Adam did. See, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God had just warned them don't fall into the sins before the flood. He brings a flood. He wipes the earth out. He leaves eight people alive. 
And no sooner do they start to spread out, they're right back where they were again, in the same condition that they had been in before the flood ever came. They're still the sons of men. And that's the story of the Bible, isn't it? Sin and judgment, sin and mercy, sin and grace, sin and forgiveness, over and over and over and over again, and we just don't learn. Nothing but God's grace can speak to our sin. Nothing. And so Adam's sin is replayed all over again in this story. The second thing in the verse, though, is what uh, John Piper, wonderful pastor, teacher, author, calls God's holy scorn. Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower. I think that is a wonderful phrase. This wonderful tower that they had built that was going to go all the way to heaven. And God has to come down and look and say, Now, where is that tower they were building? Oh, look at there. There it is. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Look at that tower. They thought they were so great and so powerful. And God has to come. He can't even see their tower from heaven. Well, now I know that actually God can see everything. I know that. But sometimes when you're trying to kind of heap some scorn, you use some irony. And so it's like God says, I can't even see that wonderful tower of yours from up here. Let me get on a cloud and come down here and see if I can see that tower down there that you have built that is so great and so mighty and so powerful. And he does that with us too, doesn't he? We think we're so great. We think we're so powerful. We think we're so mighty. We think we are so capable. Notice what he says in verse 6. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from the Lord, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. God said that he had given us tremendous potential. God has given us as humans, as men and women, as his children, the tremendous potential to do great and powerful things. But compared to his power, they are nothing. Where is that moon that you said you landed on? Oh, oh, there it is right there, that little speck right there. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's really good. I'm proud of you. Where is that big, huge tower in Dubai? Oh, yeah, there, right there. You see, God looks at what we do with this holy scorn because we think we are so powerful and so mighty. And he looks down on us and he says, I have to help you understand who you are and who I am. And so what does God do? His response is to scatter them and mix their languages together. His response to their presumption, to their arrogance, was to make it harder for men to communicate with each other, harder for them to unite in their God-belittling, God-ignoring plans. God has built into the world a system by which the pride of different groups of people restrains the pride of other groups of people. And so one of the questions I asked a few minutes ago at the beginning is, to why, whether it was a good or bad thing, that there were these different nation states that were nervous about one another and keeping an eye on each other, the answer is you bet it's good. You bet it's a good thing. This is not some reaction that God has to something he didn't plan for. 
This is God's design because he saw and he knew what could happen if they were united together. And so he scatters them, mixes their languages to where they cannot communicate with each other so that they cannot succeed in the plans that they have made. Thousands and thousands of languages, 6,500 plus languages that have been categorized and cataloged in the world today. And that was God's plan. So that brings me to the so what. Okay, this is what God did thousands of years ago on the plains of Shinar to a group of people that did not want to do what God told them to do. So how does that apply to us today? What does that tell us about God's design and God's plan for his creation? Well, before we go into that, let me just remind us of a couple of things. Number one. Every time that God causes or allows something to happen, there's a reason. God is not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't have to run and try to play catch up with the things that we're doing. God allows things to happen or causes things to happen for a reason because God has a plan. He has a plan. And his plan is always to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. God's plan is that Jesus Christ would be the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, and he would be lifted up and glorified by all of creation. And everything that God allows or causes to happen is a part of that plan. So, this scattering of languages, this scattering of peoples, it was God's judgment on their sin, just like we learned in Bible study this morning. But beloved, it's so much more than that. It is vastly more than just God punishing a few people 5,000 years ago for their arrogance and their sin. I want to share with you, I'm sure there are many more things, but I'm going to share with you five things that I see in this passage that God has done to glorify himself and his son by these actions. Watch them with me, will you? Number one, the first thing that God did, the first reason, I believe, why God allowed this to happen was so that the rise of global, monolithic, anti-Christian states that would have the power to simply wipe out Christians is hindered by giving these multiplied languages. Sometimes we think that all these languages are a hindrance to our evangelism, a hindrance to our work, a hindrance to the work of the kingdom. But God knows things we don't know. Maybe God understands the fact that if all of the world were of one language and one culture, they could unite together in their God-defying, God-belittling, God-ignoring life and literally crush the church. And so what does God do? God mixes their language. He scatters them. He sets them at odds against one another so they cannot unite. And so he does it to protect his church. So I say again, all of these nations vying with one another, standing and keeping an eye on each other are a good thing because God is much more concerned about unity than he is about diversity. God is much more concerned with the 
non-Christian, God-defying peoples gathering together than he is with them staying scattered in one place. And so he does this way back at the tower and the city on the plain of Shinar in order that the church of Jesus Christ would be protected. That's the first thing. Secondly, the second thing that happens is that this is a precursor to something we've studied about just a few months ago. Now somebody may ask, now pastor, you're talking about this one monolithic culture. Didn't I read somewhere in my Bible that there was going to come a time when there was going to be a big worldwide grouping of peoples and they would all be gathered together into one huge monolithic state? Seems like maybe 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 or over in Revelation. Yes, you're right. There is going to be that. There is going to come that time. God has been restraining this, this man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, this beast that John referred to. There will become a time when God will loosen that restraint and the peoples will be gathered together in one place. They will be gathered together behind one leader, this Antichrist, and the church will go through tremendous persecution. And they will suffer so much so that Jesus said if it were not for the shortening of those days, even the elect themselves would cease to exist. You see, in verse 9, in our Holman translation, they've gone ahead and translated the word that most translations have as Babel or Babel, B-A-B-E-L. But in verse 9 in the Holman, it says, therefore its name is called Babylon. Because you see, over 200 times this word is used in the Old Testament. And except for just a handful of times, this word is translated not Babel, it is Babylon. This is God's scorn on Babylon. Not just the city, not just the physical geographical location, but all the things that Babylon represents. This united cultural linguistic grouping of peoples that unite themselves against God, against his son, against his church. I want you to listen as I read for you just a little bit about what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 18 about Babylon, this great prostitute that makes herself drunk by drinking the blood of the saints that she martyrs. Listen to the words for her sins are piled up to the heavens, and God has remembered her crimes. As much as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never see grief. But they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. You see, Genesis chapter 11 is tied to Revelation chapter 18. This scorn on Babel 
This punishment is a precursor to what God is going to do because this is the prototype, the seed of Babylon, that defiance, that pride, that desire for human achievement and human effort without God's help. And what happens to that great Babylon? They rise up in power. They rise up in might. They rise up in glory. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells us what happens when the lawless one will be revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8, he says, The lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Jesus will speak, and from his mouth that great antichrist will be destroyed and all that Babylon stands for will be made naught. And so God sets the stage just like he did in Genesis chapter 3 when he told Eve that your seed will one day crush the serpent's head. So here by punishing the people of Babylon, this is not about some little village in Shinar. This is a prophecy by God's very act. The third thing that happens is that when Jesus Christ comes to claim earth as his own, when he comes to claim the peoples as his own, he will do it in every language, in every tongue, in every culture. That's why in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because you see, when the people were scattered at Babel, it wasn't just their languages. It was their cultures that were scattered. And Jesus Christ will claim every nation, every people, every language, and that will give him more glory than if it had just been one monolithic group of people all speaking one language. The fact that Jesus lays claim to every culture, every people, every tribe, every nation, every language. Fourthly, not only can we say that about Christ, we also can say that about the gospel. And what the gospel is, is Jesus Christ who was crucified according to scriptures. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He was risen as scripture testifies. And that gospel, that message of the saving power of Jesus Christ crosses all languages, all cultures. And because of what God did in Genesis chapter 11, the gospel is not a tribal religion. It is not a religion of one language or one culture or one people. Being former missionaries, Sharon and I to this day are fascinated and prayerful about the thousands of people groups on this planet that are still unreached with the gospel. And you can read about people groups from everywhere from South Asia to the pockets of Amerindians in Mexico to people scattered across the aboriginal tribes of Australia. And you'll hear about millions of people who have not been reached. And they will say there's about a hundred believers among those three million people. 
And I go, yes, yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ has touched people that are so different from me. They'd be like they came from another planet. They don't eat the same food I eat. They don't talk the same way I talk. I don't understand their language, how they write it, how they say it. I don't understand how they live and what they do. And yet the same gospel that brought this American deep southern boy to Jesus Christ brought that man in Tibet or that person of the Aborigines, or that person in Mexico, or that person in the Aleutian Islands, the same gospel. And it glorifies God and what Christ has done because the gospel is not a tribal religion. It is not an ethnic religion. It is not a linguistic religion. It reaches to all peoples. And God did this intentionally so that we would see his glory as the vast numbers of people across the earth are touched. And if there are still people groups out there when there are, where there are no believers, let's go and let's tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And finally, the fifth thing we say about this is that when the time comes and Jesus is praised, every language, every people and you're going to remember these verses because we talked about them just a few months ago when we were studying Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, And they sang a new song. You, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then if you go over just a couple of chapters to chapter 7, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Beloved, on that day, when Jesus Christ is finally given the praise and glory and honor that he deserves, it will be every people, every language, and all of those languages will sing the same praise and glory to Jesus Christ. And it will be more glorious and more awesome because it is a multiplication of languages all joined together in praise of our Savior and our Lord. So, beloved, today... Let me just remind you that when God acts, there's always a plan. This was not just about punishing people for their disobedience. This was not just about punishing people for their arrogance. This was about God protecting us, bringing glory to his son, shining forth the beauty of the gospel, laying out for us a prototype of the punishment that will come to those who stand in defiance of Jesus Christ and the wonderful praise that will go up from every people and language and nation to the glory of Jesus Christ. He is all in all. And so, First Baptist Church of Waterloo, in the beacon, in the sanctuary, on Sunday nights, in home groups, where we work, where we play, where we study. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord.
Let's pray together. Father, today we have seen from your word that you never react in knee-jerk fashion to the things that we do. You have a plan, and everything that happens in our lives, whether by your design or your permission, is a part of your plan, and there is a reason. And so, Father, we would ask you today, as we look at our own individual lives, we don't always understand why the things happen to us. We don't understand why you allow things to occur. But we can trust that you have a plan to bring glory to your Son through these things that happen in our lives. And so may we be open to you. May we listen. May we respond in obedience and humility. May we find our satisfaction and our praise and our glory not in what men say about us, but rather in knowing you and praising you. And may we find our security not in the things that we can build or buy or install or carry, but rather in the relationship that we have with you as our Father and your Son as our Savior and Lord. For we ask this in his name, Jesus. Amen.